from uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 30, through to the end of chapter 23. Um, so that's the last, last verse of chapter 22, through to the end of Acts 23. So on page 1118 on the Blue Bibles. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all of the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, at this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near him to strike him on his mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and you judge according to the law, yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered his troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in an ambush for him. 
They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, and go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learnt that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with them while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Josh. Good morning, church. Everyone's awake and well this morning, I presume. The sun is shining. I have a question I want everyone to throw their minds back to and think whether your family has any traditions. It's an odd question and it doesn't have too much to do with the rest of my sermon, but the Goatleys have few family traditions. I could only think of three. The first is we would sit down and watch the first and the last ten laps of the Bathurst race because no one sits through the other 140-odd laps. The second, my siblings and I would always go to Queenstown for Easter camp, obviously at Easter time, and that was a great foundation for our spiritual growth and faith. However, the one tradition I want you to try and picture this morning is the hardest to break in the Goatley household, though many of us have tried. It is the politically charged debate the metaphorical overhaul or defence of our government at Christmas dinner. (laughs) I'm not sure what your Christmas dinner looks like, but I assume it's a little more peaceful than that. We criticise the latest policy that's been put on, we criticise the amount of money that is being spent, and the cherry on top for whoever's the boldest in the room is to claim how godless this world is becoming. If you had had the joy of witnessing this as many times as I had, you'd know exactly the right thing to say to get peak inflammation at one moment. Whether it be mentioning a particular jab, 
whether it be mentioning an abortion bill, the room would fly into sparks and rage instantly. Now, I'm not claiming I've ever done that on purpose, and I'm not encouraging anyone to seek an argument such. However, Paul here finds himself in a politically charged, dangerous environment. Unfortunately for Paul, his is a little more violent, and so the Christmas table at the Goatley household isn't so. But let us pray and ask God's help as we unpack this passage in Acts. Lord, we pray for your help for us Goatleys, but also, Lord, we pray for this passage in Acts to rest on our hearts. Lord, as Paul faced dangerous circumstance after dangerous circumstance, he remained faithful to you. Lord, would we be inspired by his faithfulness and your faithfulness to him? Lord, would we be resilient? Would we be faithful stewards? And would we be faithfully trusting in your promises and your plan? Imitating Paul as he imitated Christ. In your loving name we pray. Amen. Well, we need to understand where we were last week as Stu unpacked for us. And Paul had restated his conversion story in front of a large Jewish mob, which led to quite an uproar due to his foggy background. The commander then dragged him away to the barracks for torture. However, Paul manages to escape by invoking his Roman citizenship. And so we come to our text this morning, the commander with a bitter egg on his face as he has tried to torture a Roman citizen. He now needs to address this dispute through the Roman justice system. And knowing that you've all kept your Bibles open to Acts chapter 22, read with me from verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are no, neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. Paul is thrown straight into the thick of an angry argument and dispute. Thanks, Commander. Paul begins to address the groups, claiming that he has fulfilled his duty to God in all good conscience to this day. What a joyous testimony for Paul to be able to proclaim. Some, some may even find it a little bit presumptuous and arrogant of him to claim 
that he has fulfilled his duty to God in all good conscience. However, isn't that a wonderful question for us all to be testing ourselves at all times? Am I fulfilling my duty to God in good conscience? As Paul proclaimed that, Ananias commands the men surrounding Paul to hit him on the mouth. Now this was not a simple slap just to tell him to be quiet. This is the same language that was used as Jesus was being beat on his way to the crucifixion. No wonder the next words that come out of Paul's mouth are said with such a sting. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. This insult from Paul is referring to Ananias' hypocritical lifestyle. The Pharisees are known for, being, for their zeal for keeping the law, yet in declaring that Paul be struck, he is violating the law by having him beat. However, upon the, Paul, uh, upon the group revealing to Paul who Ananias was, Paul backtracks instantly and submits to the authority that Ananias has. Paul repents quickly in that very moment of being informed. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Ananias, no matter how wicked he was, still demanded and deserved the respect of Paul and all that were present. This was no easy matter for Paul, but one he did out of service to God. Unlike Paul, we today find it very easy to submit to all authority, don't we? I know I won't have to labour this point very well, so everyone's very good at this already. In truth, we find it easy to submit to authority that we can respect and can see godliness in. Remaining faithful to God requires submitting to all authority that he has given. Our parents, our government, and our elders. Here, we find Paul continue his defence. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Metaphorical rocket fuel on a fire. This would have caused an explosion with the group there between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It would be the equivalent of saying to someone who is clearly very angry at you to calm down. Or running to an, a pro-choice protest and saying abortion is murder. You would get your head bitten off. Luke goes on to describe the unfolding scene with, in verse 9, there was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away by force and bring him back to the barracks. We get some great use of language from our author Luke. A great uproar. They argued vigorously. The dispute became so violent the commander was concerned they would tear him to pieces and he was taken by force to get him out of there. This is no civil discussion like the Goatley family dinner table. However, I imagine it looked a little more like this photo Rob's going to put up for us in a moment. Not that one, I don't think. That one. 
This situation has Paul whisked away very quickly by the commander back to the barracks, for they feared for Paul's life. I don't know about you, but as I picture Paul in this moment, I don't see a very enthusiastic Paul. In his time in Jerusalem, he is now wanted and to be killed by the people he was trying to testify to. He is wanted and they are trying to kill him because of his repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Through all of this, one of Paul's strongest traits is his resilience. Paul has faced many trials with the Lord over the last few years, or many years, yet he remains faithful and resilient. He is so resilient that even when he stumbled by yelling back at Ananias, he is so quick to repent and get back on the true track of faith in Christ. Paul's resilience is strong because of his strong faith. The following, uh, reading in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So I think I'm right with seeing Jesus himself or the Lord himself comes and comforts Paul. Paul was probably rather downcast. But I'm not sure this would have helped immediately with him thinking of his surroundings being held up in the barracks by the commander. The conversation hasn't gone overly well with the Sanhedrin and now God is saying go and do the same in Rome. Rome who is well known for its torture methods and its trying people for disagreements. However, the Lord himself appeared to Paul. I think the Lord himself charges Paul with going to Rome because of the faithful stewardship that he has had with what the Lord has given him so far. The fruit of what Paul can see might not be immense, but the faithfulness in Paul's heart is. What a joy it is for Paul to face tomorrow and the next day being reinforced by the Lord and charged with more work for his kingdom because he was faithful. When we testify and are resilient in any form for the Lord, he is there with us in the thick of it. He is never far, and we are not strong enough to face everything on our own, but through the spirit that lives within us and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we can say, as Paul did in one of his letters to the Philippians, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all through him who strengthens me. Continuing our passage in verse 12, the next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard the plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, 
who Paul then told, told the centurions to take this young man to the commander. And Paul the prisoner, uh, the centurion said to the commander, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. A bit of he said, he said going on here. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. The Lord continues to orchestrate things around Paul to reinforce and protect him. I don't think he was orchestrating the upcoming ambush. However, within a day, the ambush was planned and thwarted. The Lord ensures Paul's safety to continue to carry out the mission of God. Some might say this was a classic case of coincidence or the right person being in the right place at the right time. Maybe. However, God's sovereignty, surely. Allowing him to not be attacked by this ambush and to continue his purpose to roam. God continues to protect him. The commander then called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to the governor Felix. So now Paul, thinking that there's going to be an ambush of 40 people waiting for him, is now travelling with a group of 470 men, soldiers. Not only has the Lord provided, but the Lord has provided in abundance. God continues to do this throughout all of history. The Lord orchestrates things around us, even today, that we don't see. I have a short story here from a missionary named George Mueller, who many of you will have heard his story before, but let me share. George grew up in Germany and shifted over to England on the 25th of May, 1832. This man was involved in translating Bibles and planning schools and orphanages. Once these orphanages grew to a sufficient size, the neighbours began to complain of the noise of the children around the area, and therefore they decided they needed to expand and move. In 1849, these orphanages held 300 children, and by 1870, there were 1,722 children being cared for in this ministry. At no point throughout the journey of this ministry did George make any financial requests of anyone. The Lord instead inspired the hearts of those around him in this wonderful ministry opportunity. Not only did he never ask for money, he never went into debt. One morning, presumably earlier than having 1,722 children, they were sitting at the table giving thanks for breakfast for the food that they did not have. As they finished saying grace, there was a knock on the door. The baker showed up with enough bread to feed everyone at the table. Not only that, but as they looked past the baker, the milkman's cart had broken down behind him 
and couldn't get his milk to where he needed to go. So they delivered the milk to the children. In George's autobiography, he quotes this. The Lord not only gives as much as is absolutely necessary for his work, but he gives abundantly. This blessing filled me with inexplicable delight. George Mueller and Paul both understood what it meant not only to be provided for in every circumstance, but that the Lord is worthy and trustworthy of our faith. We must faithfully trust his purposes. I want to do a little bit of a chance thing here. I want you to take a moment to picture giving grace for no food. And thinking how hungry your stomach would be for breakfast. We call it breakfast because it's breaking the fast. You're hungry and all of a sudden the food shows up. What a wonderful God that we worship here today. As we continue in verse 25 of, our, of chapter 23, he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Paul now ends up in Caesarea. Not in Jerusalem. Not in Rome. What is God doing? He is to be kept here until his next hearing, except this time his hearing has been escalated. Not only is he standing in front of the commander, he is now standing in front of a governor to testify to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He has been given a wider audience. And it is at this time where he will go from hearing to hearing and eventually end up in prison in Rome. Through all of this, even though Paul doesn't understand what is going on, God is remaining faithful to Paul and putting him in the right locations. And Paul continues to trust the Lord in each and every moment. This is a deep trust that has been built up over years of faith. Paul's opening line that he says to the Sanhedrin can be a key takeaway for today. My brothers... I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Is this an arrogant claim of Paul? No. Is it arrogant for us to ponder that we might be able to say that same line? I think not. Our goal is to be as faithful to God's calling on our lives as we can be. 
we may be able to say, my brothers and sisters, I have faithfully fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. In saying this, we're not only being faithful to God, but we're being faithful to each other, to the authorities that God has placed, and to ourselves. The highest calling in this life is to be faithful in our relationship to God through his son, Jesus Christ. If you're here for the first time, if there's one thing that we want you to hear this morning, it is that Christ lived, died, and rose again so that we can have relationship with him. As we face the calling that God has put on each and every one of our lives, both corporately to follow him and individually as ourselves, we need to be faithfully resilient in God, we need to be faithfully stewarding what God has given us, and we need to be faithfully trusting in the sovereignty of God. As we walk this journey with the Lord, we can ask ourselves very quickly, am I being resilient or double-minded? Am I in good conscience before God and what he has given me? Do I trust God and his plan over me even when I can't see it? Our God is worthy of our faithfulness. Let us be resilient stewards who trust in the Lord, our God. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for this example of Paul. Lord, we thank you for his faithfulness to you and your kingdom and your mission here on earth. Lord, we thank you that you would have used a man who would go on to author many books that we call that are part of your word. Lord, we, we know that you have plans for each of our lives, and Lord, would we be faithful toward it. Lord, would you build up resilience within our hearts? Would we be faithful stewards of what you have given us? And Lord, would we faithfully trust the sovereignty that you have? In Jesus' loving name we pray. Amen.